HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. Today's show is sponsored by Bob's Red Mill. With natural foods, they support organic, vegan, paleo, and gluten-free lifestyles. Learn more about their commitment to good food for all at bobsredmill.com slash podcast. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network. We're a member-supported food radio network broadcasting over 35 weekly shows live from Bushwick, Brooklyn. Join our hosts as they lead you through the world of craft brewing, behind the scenes of the restaurant industry, inside the battle over school food, and beyond. Find us at heritageradionetwork.org. Hello, this is your host, Dana Cowan, and you're listening to Speaking Broadly on Heritage Radio Network. Each week on this podcast, I talk to inspiring people in the food world about their successes and their challenges. Today, it is my great pleasure to have someone on this show who was a colleague of mine at Food & Wine and who's been a judge on Top Chef for 15 seasons. And has written two books, an autobiography, Talking With My Mouthful, which has to be one of the best titles ever, and now a cookbook called Bringing It Home. Welcome, Gail Simmons. Hi, Dana. Hi. I'm so excited to talk about this beautiful cookbook that I, I remember when it was like a seed of an idea. Mm -hmm. And looking at the reality, it's beautifully shot. And these recipes are so inspiring. I love how you say in the intro that there's a hint of familiarity. Yes. And surprise, and that it doesn't have that skipping record repertoire like you've done it over and over and over again. So this cookbook is going to inspire lots of people to up their uh, up their cooking game. I hope so. That's the plan anyway. I mean, that's why I wrote it. And actually, I have to say, along the way, it taught me a lot too, right? Which happens. So I was wondering, like, what did you learn about yourself in the process of doing this book? First of all, you revisited a lot of your past. Yes. You know, doing this book was a, was a long process, as books are in general, as you all know, but also specifically because I wrote another book beforehand, and it took me several years to really work up the courage to go back and do it again, even though writing a cookbook and writing my first book, which was more of an autobiography, more of kind of a story of, of my life to date, um, they're, they're very different formats, and, and writing a cookbook is a very different process, but... I was very nervous to write a cookbook. One, because of the work involved and making the time to do that. And two, because 
you aren't sure, at least I wasn't sure, that I was kind of good enough to write a cookbook. That there's such a crowded landscape in the book in the book world, and especially in the cookbook world, that who am I to say that I have recipes worthy of being published in a book? And even though I think I have a lot of experience, I mean, I've been working in the food industry, cooking professionally, working at Food & Wine. You know, I had 20 years in the food industry and 40 years of life behind me. I still felt very insecure about it. That could I do this? Am I up for it? Do people care? First of all, do people care? And, and even if some people cared, could I do a good enough job? And that was a big thing to tackle before I even got into <laughs> doing the book. So that's the first thing I learned about myself, that I could do it. And that you could overcome that yes. insecurity, whatever it was. What gave you the courage? Like, How did you cross that you know, large divide between, I'm not sure if it's worth it, and I am going all in. Because, of course, when you ever you, you do anything, you really right. commit fully. I had a daughter four years ago, and for a while I couldn't sort of think of taking on the project. But the one thing that changes so much when you have children is that it gave me a, a bigger reason to get back in the kitchen. One, I was home more, wasn't going out as much. I mean, before I had her, I was out so many nights a week. I mean, it's endless in New York, the events and the travel I could do. And so I was home more and I was cooking for her. And because I was also cooking for her, I was cooking for myself a lot more. And so I went back and revisited so many of the recipes throughout my life that were meaningful. And I realized that over the last entire time that I've been alive, but certainly since I've been old enough to write things down um, in my travels, I've actually taken pretty good notes. And I have notes from my year spent in Spain when I was 20 years old. I have notes from, um, you know, two different very big trips to Asia over the years. I have very detailed notes. And I realized that I actually had a lot of good info there and stuff that I wanted to share. I've been writing recipes for a long time for different purposes, for the magazine, for example, um, you know, or other projects I do that require me to recipe test and develop recipes. But thinking of doing 100 of them seemed impossible until I sat down and started writing this very casual table of contents. And I found that I got to 100 recipes pretty quickly. That, I, I love that notion of being able to keep great notes. I keep terrible notes. Mm. You know, I, I have so many notebooks and they're all like 10 pages full and then blank. I have a lot I, of those too. I set out with the best intentions. Yeah. And then what I realize is, number one, I never go back to those notes. So is there a system that like those of us who want to be note takers and want to record our histories can, can learn from? Because that would be a great tip. Well, the funny thing about notes is, first of all, my handwriting is atrocious. I uh -huh. mean, I scribble like a third grader. Uh -huh. That's probably giving me too much credit. I know some third graders that have better writing than I do. Um, the notes in the books that I'm referring to specifically are, are, are little travel notebooks that I kept with me when I was traveling. And when you're traveling, I find it easier to take notes because you have your plane ride there and back to catch up on the notes. And, and there's sort of time because you're on vacation or you're traveling to do so. And those are the notes that are definitely the most thorough. My year in Spain, I kept a diary. I mean, I, didn't, wow. I wasn't like a diary person, right. but I kept a diary of my year in Spain. I didn't necessarily write in it every day, but in, I would catch up on it once a week and include every single day of what I did. Oh my goodness. And so that I'm, was extraordinary. My father is a crazy scrapbooker. And so he probably has influenced me in this. 
But what's interesting about note taking now is that it's changed so much. I, I don't take great notes anymore on my own in notebooks, although I do keep a notebook for my lists of to do's. But my phone has become, and I think for everyone that might be a bit easier, my phone has really become my notebook. And now when I travel or just in my everyday life, I have a note in the notes section of my phone for every city I go to, uh, especially with Top Chef because I'm in every city for a long time. And any city we've ever visited, I have a note in my notebook with every place I've eaten. Oh my goodness. And any of the great food um, that I had or discoveries or stores or inspiration. So that has made taking notes a lot easier. Uh, I would love access to those notes, just thinking of all of the cities that you've been to. But the reason that you're note-taking, either that or your amazing memory really struck me, is that... <laughs> My memory is fading daily. <laughs> it's kind of like a sieve. Uh, was the story that you tell about the Singapore noodles... Um, with you. With, exactly, that I was very lucky to be there at... Um, Top Chef, the finale in Singapore. It was season seven. And we both went to this hawker stand and we both were uh, apparently, you know, really moved by this man who was making incredible noodles and it was had been his father's shop and his father's father's mm-hmm. shop. And I left saying, God, those were so good. But when I read the detail in your notes of so Remind me, like, what sure. was that dish? And then how did you translate it for the cookbook? Because, in, indeed, it's a great dish in the book. Yes, thank you. Um, I forgot that, that that recipe, it's a recipe for Hokkien noodles, which you really can't find here in the States at all. I've never found an exact version. I'm sure people make it in their homes. But it's a very classic Singaporean noodle dish. Um, and like a lot of dishes in Singapore, it's a hybrid from a lot of different Asian cultures. And it is very commonly eaten on the street in hawker centers. And that dish was really a major piece of getting myself together to write this book overall. I had this recipe in my mind. Um, I was amazed by it, fascinated by it. And it was one of the first recipes that I set out to sort of crack for the book. Um, you and I and David Chang and Tom Colicchio, um, Chris Gerdovich was with us for a little bit of the time in Singapore, too. There was Eric Repair. We had this amazing community build. But on this day, I believe it was just you and Tom and David and I, and we went on a Hawker Center tour through, Sing- for, through the Singapore Hawker Centers, led by KF Sito, who is one of the most gregarious characters in the food world. He knows more about Singaporean food and street food, especially than anyone can imagine. We were lucky enough that he took us to probably 10 or 14 places that day. I mean, we just didn't stop It was stop a meeting. quick tour. It was great. It was. And we got to this one hawker center, and I have very vivid memories, but I think that they are, they are solidified by the pictures I took. I have pictures of this <laughs> man yeah. and this walk. And he was making Singapore noodles, uh, Hokkien noodles, which involves two different types of noodles, a thick noodle and a thin noodle. There's pork belly. There's squid. There's shrimp. There's a, a very complex seafood stock. He tosses it all together. There's often mung beans. Um, and then finishes it at the table with a squeeze of calamansi, which is an Asian citrus that, again, is impossible to find in the States. I think laws of importation don't allow for that citrus to be here in its raw form. You can get it in frozen juice I didn't know that methods um, and other ways, but you can't actually buy that citrus. Really, I don't think anywhere. I've never seen it. And when I sat down and ate this noodle dish, I remember thinking it's my perfect noodle dish 
because there were lots of chewy, delicious textured noodles and fatty pork belly and the perfectly cooked shrimp and squid. And then there was this bright, bright citrus juice. And it's not just like squeezing lime juice. Calamansi is sort of a cross between a lime and, and a mandarin. So it has a slight sweetness to it. It's green on the outside and orange on the inside. And... I then, don't think I've ever seen one uh, raw, not, right. not cut. There right. you go. Or, cut, right. So it was all amazing. And then you squeeze some sriracha over it and drizzle some sriracha. And the whole dish to me was like perfect. It hit every note. And I walked away remembering that dish from that day. For years, I mean, that was several years ago. That was at least six or seven years ago now. Um, season seven and we're in season 15. So there you go. You can't really do the math, but there's the math. <laughs> Um, so, you know, anyway, a long time ago, but that, that dish really stuck with me and I wrote it down. I have pretty decent notes from that trip because we went to so many places that I was inspired by and I wanted to make it at home. And the way that the man made it at the stall was very quick. I mean, it all came together because he had all of his prep done and this was his livelihood and his father before him, they had been making it. The rhythm of that walk was just sort of beautiful and there was no way I was going to replicate it exactly, nor did I think that most people would set out to make this dish in the complex way that he did because the deceptive thing about Asian street food is it looks really easy and quick because it's all made and put together and assembled in front of you. But as I have come to know from a few experiences, there is so much prep work that goes into dishes like this, the chopping and the cutting and the cooking of all things individually. So I wanted to make this dish for my family. I wanted to make it for my husband and I wanted my daughter to try it because who doesn't love a good noodle? And I, I had to cut some corners. Not cut some corners much, but figure out ways to make it easier. So I, in the book, um, I use clam juice to as a base for the seafood stock instead of simmering a very complicated seafood stock. Clam juice and the shells from the shrimp that are cooked later on. And that's an easy, literally 15-minute stock that has a lot of flavor. Um, I use pork belly that I render really quickly instead of braising other big pieces of pork. I use squid that I cut into rings and I put in just at the very end and it, it takes them two seconds to cook. So it all comes together pretty well. The noodles go in. Do you use a, a fat and a thin? A fat and a thin. But, you know, you can get pretty easily vermicelli noodles, you know, rice noodles as the thin and a thicker udon noodle. I love that. I think that just so, alone, even if you tried to do that, is mm -hmm. really interesting. And it's just still so satisfying. And then the <laughs> issue was the calamansi. How am I going to replicate calamansi? Because I wanted that fresh juice. And after tinkering around in my kitchen, I discovered that if I take a mandarin and I take a lime and I squeeze a little bit of both on top, you can get pretty close. So that is really still one of my favorite recipes in the book. It's a little more involved than a lot of other recipes in the book, but it really pays off. It is the the texture and the contrast, like the the sweet and the spicy, and mm -hmm. it's it's pretty great. It, you can just imagine someone top chefing it and going, "Oh, I love the texture." Yes. <laughs> I know we've created monsters across the country, but right, it's true. Exactly. Reviewing monsters. Mm -hmm. Another dish in the book that I I loved the story behind because it shows your desire to um, crack the code was um, the cha cha. Um, oh, the Chaka Lavang. Yeah. That, I mean, similar story, although that although. story sort of ha had a sadder, <laughs> sadder <laughs> ending. But um, so when you, so tell us the story of when you went to Hanoi. And sure. 
uh, my, my very first time in Asia was for my honeymoon. Uh, Jeremy, my husband, and I decided we would go to Vietnam, partially because of a picture we found in Food and Wine magazine years before. Okay. Years before we were married, we saw a picture of this resort in Vietnam, and neither of us had been to Vietnam. It wasn't really even on my radar, but this place looked so extraordinary. And by the time we were planning our honeymoon, we decided the one rule of our honeymoon is we're going to go somewhere that neither of us have ever been before. And Jeremy had been to Thailand. I'd never been to Asia. We decided, let's do Vietnam. So we planned this big trip. We did stay at that place, um, which is on an island off the coast, and that was an incredible adventure as well. But we landed in Hanoi, and your first time in a city like Hanoi, I, I I found very overwhelming. It is a city... With an enormous population, most of whom are on scooters and motorized bicycles, sometimes three or four people on one bike at a time, um, and the traffic signals are not amazing. And it has a beautiful history. You know, Hanoi was the capital, the the, the north, the northern Vietnamese capital. Um, that's where Ho Chi Minh is embalmed. And it's a fascinating history and incredible food. And time and again, anyone I asked about where we should eat when we go to Hanoi, the first thing everyone told me, from Anthony Bourdain to Peter Lindbergh, a good friend who's an amazing travel writer, to literally anyone who'd ever known anything about Hanoi, is you have to eat a chakalavong. Chakalavong is named after its namesake dish, which is a very, very well-known dish in northern Vietnam which is made with snakehead fish, which is not an appetizing fish. (laughs) Thankfully, we cannot get it here. But it's sort of like a catfish. And it's made with snakehead fish and then very common spices in northern Vietnam, like turmeric, and there's a lot of dill in it, chopped peanuts. And it's really, really tasty. It's cooked very quickly and then served over a bed of vermicelli rice. And it is incredibly delicious. So everyone said I had to go to this place for this dish, and I was very jet-lagged, and we were in Hanoi for five days, and we tried three different times to go to Chakalavong. And every time, for whatever reason, we were faced with an issue. The first time we got there, and it was just closed. No, the first time we got there, there was too much of a lineup, and they weren't going to be able to serve us in time. We would have to wait for hours. It'd be closed. So that was that. Then we went back the next night, but we had to go after we had gone to some sort of Vietnamese puppet theater, which I don't necessarily advise. And we <laughs> ran there through the old quarter to get to Chekha Levang in time, and they literally closed the doors in our face. Oh. And after just being sort of thrown down and, and heartbroken time and again, I sat down in the street and cried my eyes out. It's embarrassing. It was not my best moment, but... I just, I think, was exhausted by travel, overwhelmed by the city, and I had this list, and it was at the top of the list, and how could I not eat this food? And it was our last night in Vietnam, in in Hanoi. We were leaving the next day, and my dreams were dashed, and I was devastated. I literally cried for a few hours. I mean, my new husband did not know what to do with me. I mean, I'm sure he was imagining that he had made some very poor decisions in marrying me at the time. Perhaps surprised. Yes. Um, So I I never got to eat it. And I came back to the States and I consoled myself and I realized that it's okay to not be able to do everything on your list. And I got over that. But I just want to pause there because I yes. think that's such, I feel like we live in such a list culture, which yes. I, I think is one of the reasons that really struck me. And it has a good ending, of course, so mm-hmm. that's nice too. Yes, yes. But um, what do you think of the list culture, right? Because you go, anywhere you go, you do a lot of research and Mm -hmm. you try to check things off the list. But what do you think? We all make lists. We love a list. I love a list. You know, I think everyone loves a list. The internet loves a list. 
But I think it's very easy to fall into the trap of obsessing over these lists and, and not doing any of your own exploration, relying on what everyone else does because you feel like, well, you have to go there to say you've done that. Um, when really we all forget, it's, it's almost like now we have GPS, so we never look where we're driving and we, and we lose the adventure of getting lost. Because I, I have to agree that I feel like there could have been a place that was just as good. There are. There uh, is no doubt. That 500 people hadn't been to and hadn't written about. And I think we just need to remember that. Mm-hmm. One, for the spirit of adventure, super important. And two, because going to the place that everybody else has been, though you can check it off, you haven't had, you're trying to have their experience, not your own. So That's right. then you came back and made your own experience. So I did. And you turned it into something else. I what did came you turn back, it into? I came back and I... Realize you can get, you know, people, there's a lot of really great Vietnamese restaurants all over the country. And in New York City, certainly, almost everyone I've been to has a version of chaka. And so I was able to taste it in other ways and by other people and understand it. And I really still love it. The flavors are delicious. And so I decided to make a version myself in my book, um, you know, as a, as a, an homage to, I guess, <laughs> the dish I never really was able to eat in the place that it is from. But I, I turned it into a salad, and I actually love the version in the book. It is traditional as much as it can be in terms of the flavors and the spices, and there's a lot of chilies and roasted crushed peanuts and turmeric and lots of fresh dill and cilantro, and it still has that vermicelli rice, but I actually use pineapple with it, which I'm not necessarily a big put pineapple in savory things person, but it really works here because it's fresh and bright and acidic and cabbage. And I make a really delicious salad that I have to say I have made several times um, before the, you know, in making the book since the book. And it is really refreshing and satisfying. It might have freed you in some strange I way. Think it did. You know, I mean, not that you would ever be able to slavishly reproduce it because of ingredients, mm-hmm. but you didn't have it, and you have the essence of it, and you've made it your own, which at the end of the day, when you're answering the question, like, why my book? Well, yes. Your book is because it gets put through this sort of idea of, like, what do you want to eat and your whole storyline. So That's it. I think that's actually really the point of my book. I mean, that's why it's called Bringing It Home, because there are so many recipes in the book like that that are all seeds of ideas. I never take an exact recipe from someone else and replicate it because that's impossible. And I don't want to do that. That would give it no uh, personal voice from me. The point is, as you said, there are a lot of dishes with a hint of familiarity, a dish you know, but I try to give it to you through my lens and in a way that twists it a little bit, makes you think about the way that the technique is used, um, the ingredients, maybe a combination you haven't tried before, and changes things just a little bit so that it makes it exciting. And it's easy to do at home. I mean, you have been an encyclopedic um, eater, as Tom Clicchio ah. said in the forward. Mm. I just, I love those words. Uh, also in the forward, you talk about the lessons that you learned as a judge um, of Top Chef, in mistakes not to make in the kitchen and right. things to do in the kitchen, which I thought was great because you're watching cooking for hours and hours and hours. Mm-hmm. So what were some of the the cooking lessons, but also the human lessons that came out of that kitchen? Because I think at the end of the day, everybody can hold a knife who goes into that kitchen. Right. right? But a lot of them are done in by their own um, emotional they, Our contestants makeup. sure are. Um, you know, 
being on top chef for so long and even beforehand just working with chefs and watching professionals cook for years before there's so many things that they do that we all as home cooks don't think about and take for granted because it's what they do and I don't those rules don't apply to the home kitchen or I would never be able to do it with that kind of skill or precision or speed in my home kitchen but especially being on Top Chef where my job is to analyze and constructively, I hope, criticize um, the chef because after all, it's a game and we need to pick a winner. Um, <laughs> I, have, I have seen so many patterns. And so the front of the book has a section of chef lessons worth taking home. And if you read them, they are lessons that we all know, I think, on the surface. They are, they are lines that Tom and Padma and I say over and over to the chefs. They are techniques and ideas about cooking that come up on the show time and again. And I sort of codify them, write them down and explain that they are actually all completely applicable to the home kitchen. Um, Simple things like seasoning, you know, when to add salt, salt, salt. how to use salt, how to season throughout the process of cooking, why you season at certain times, what to do when you over season and how important seasoning is Um, to more emotional questions in the kitchen. Like, how asking for help is okay and leaning on the people around you who have, you know, skills and talents that you may not. Um, did, you, did you find that people, uh, the chef testants, found it hard to ask for help? Well, it's a hard thing when you're in the top chef kitchen yeah. because on the one hand, you get very close with your fellow contestants. I mean, as if you've ever watched the show, you know that it's a very double-edged sword. On the one hand, they all come to love each other because they are sort of food nerds together all in one place. And it's often the first time that they really get to form these relationships where, you know, they're living together. It's such a unique experience that they're going through and they have each other and they need each other. On the other hand, it's still a competition and they're their enemies and they are still competing against each other. So it's a complicated relationship. Ultimately, I really am amazed by how deep those relationships Mm. go for years afterwards. But, you know, they... We do a lot of group challenges on the show, team challenges, which the contestants hate at the time because they don't want to cook with other people. Then you have to deal with (laughs) other people's personalities, other people's weaknesses. But again, there are very valuable lessons both in the professional kitchen and in the home kitchen about working as a team because a kitchen doesn't work unless you're part of a team. And the same thing applies at home. You know, I, I see home cooks time and again just trying to take on way too much And then things fall apart because timing is difficult and accomplishing everything you want to accomplish is difficult. But there's ways to delegate. And being a real chef, being the head of a kitchen, whether it's your home or um, a restaurant kitchen, requires some leadership. And so that's also important. Another one that top chefs, I think, see in retrospect when they leave the show and that's so important for home cooking, too, is about cooking from your roots not being afraid to embrace who you are and starting there because that's often where you do your best cooking because it's the most familiar. And then you can branch out. So many chefs, I, mean, I can think of, you know, um, Sheldon Simeon from Hawaii is one of them and Brooke Williamson is one of them and um, so many other chefs over the years, Mike Isabella for sure, have come in cooking food that isn't necessarily the food that they love and the food of their own home and their own histories because they were taught that they should be cooking French food or they should be cooking more modernist or they should be cooking Asian food because that's the restaurants that they've worked in and those are what their mentors cooked. But when they let go of all that and just started cooking, you know, when when Sheldon started really cooking Filipino food, Mm -hmm. 
that's when he did his best work. And it sort of freed him um, from, yeah. from the shackles of, and the constraints of cooking without your own voice. Of course, for me, that would mean, let's see, we had yeah, um, canned doxy clams and we had mm-hmm. Chef Boyardee noodles out of a can. So I'd have to, right. like, my Go roots deep. are going to be in cans. <laughs> yes. So, I mean, you know what? There are canned food's much better today than it, it was. It certainly is. Um, Go to Spain. Exactly. Go to Barcelona. There's, there's jars. An, yes, there's, there's amazing jars in canned food. Yes. But understood. <laughs> I mean, I, I, had, I did a little bit of that in the book, too. There's a lot of old, sort of traditional... Eastern European Jewish recipes in my book more than I thought there would be. But I think it just came through because that's where I started. So there is a really intense rendition of my mother's chicken soup and my mother's chopped liver. And, um, you know, there's there's latkes from my Aunt Sue. And there definitely... And a is great, a lot of it. A great named Grandma. Grandma Snazzy. Grandma Snazzy. Snazzy. Yep. Okay, well, we're going to take a quick break, and when we come back, we're going to hear about your roots, um, your family, and your path to your, this amazing career. Stay with us. I'm Michael Harlan Turkell, host of The Food Scene and Modernist Breadcrumbs on Heritage Radio Network. I'm here at Bob's Red Mill to find out from Bob himself why his products taste so good. So what's the secret, Bob? To make the best whole grain flour, we look back in time. No modern technology can match the old world engineering of a stone mill. Wow. Bob's Red Mill is using stone mills? How old are we talking here? Well, the stone mills are practically as old as mankind, and no matter what civilization they uncover, they find two stones that people were rubbing together to make uh, something they could eat, whole wheat flour. But the stones that we use are quarried near Paris, France, in La Ferte, and it's the same stone material from the same quarry that the uh, Romans used to make stone mills all over the Roman Empire, of which you can testify by looking at at Pompeii. It's a quartz material. It has a uniqueness about it. It's very hard. It has a certain porosity. And they put the stones together in a unit of 20 pieces and band it so that they use only the best and, and sharpest parts. It's an ingenious thing. But very old. I mean, thousands of years old. So it's uh, it's pretty cool. Those sound like some really special stones. How do they work? Stones turning either the top or the bottom stone, turning at 100 to 125 revolutions per minute, produce a lovely three, four, up to 500 pounds. Depends on how how soft the grain is. The bottom stone is the bedstone, and it's also called the nether stone in the Bible. But it also now turns for some configurations. Would you say that using stone mills lead to healthier grains? I know they do. I can watch it. I showed you. (laughs) You know it as well as I do. Uh, The grain goes in the top, goes through the stones, and it comes out. We don't lose anything, and we don't add anything. Thanks for sharing the story of how Bob's Red Mill is using ancient technology to keep their products on the cutting edge. 
Michael, we think that we can make a difference by sticking by the traditional way of stone milling whole grain, and that's what we're doing. You can learn more at bobsredmill.com slash podcast. Welcome back to Speaking Broadly. This is your host, Dana Cowan, and I'm here today with Gail Simmons, who has an amazing new book called Bringing It Home. You probably know her from Top Chef. I've known her for a really long time, long enough to have questions about how you got onto this path, because I found you middle path. That's true. <laughs> so... You know, from where I sit, from where I when I met you at Food and Wine, it you had worked for Jeffrey Steingarten, you had worked with Danielle Boulud, you had worked at at Vong, but in reading your cookbook, I was fascinated to learn that there was a time when you did not know what you were going oh, to do. A, a large swath of time, <laughs> I would say. So tell me about that. Like, how did you get on this path? I. I went to McGill University in Montreal. I grew up in Toronto, Canada. And I, when I went to school, I, ma I majored in anthropology and Spanish language and literature. And I loved school. I did well. I worked relatively hard. <laughs> um, you know, I, I thrived there. Montreal was an amazing city to go to school. I spent my junior year in Spain um, learning Spanish and and traveling through Spain and then the rest of Europe. And I came back and I did my final year at McGill. And that was when it occurred to me that I really had not thought about the future, <laughs> which maybe is normal. I don't know. You have a daughter who is about to embark on this path, which I can't even believe. We'll get there in a minute. Yeah. But I, what was more amazing to me than the fact that I had no idea was that it seemed that every one of my friends had a crystal clear idea. I mean, as if they had known all along. And to me, especially at the time, that was mind-blowing because none of us had done anything yet to know <laughs> but what no we wanted to But no one pressured you? I mean, no, your, your amazing my parents, parents? started to pressure me. You know, they, my parents were very liberal about it. I think they had confidence in me. I was getting good grades. They knew I would amount to something. Uh -huh. um, it, they started worrying, you know, a little bit after. At the end of college, really all of my girlfriends, and I have had and still have from college a really solid, very bright group of female friends who all have gone on to do interesting things, you know, but they all knew they were going to grad school as a given. I'm going to go to grad school. I'm going to be a lawyer. I'm going to get an MBA. I'm going to go to dental um, school or become an art historian. And they all were on those paths. And I literally would go around the table. And my answer was, I don't know. I really like to eat. But that was not a thing. It was not a thing. <laughs> you weren't saying that as a, that was an answer. You're like, no. ha ha, and I'd like to eat. Yeah, right? yeah, exactly. And I was sort of sheepish about it because I, it was like someone had woken me up in the middle of the night and slapped me across the face. I was shocked that all of a sudden here we were four years at, you know, into college and I hadn't a clue. And I went, I started writing little restaurant reviews in college, which I actually revisited recently and they're pretty funny. Uh, not be I wasn't getting paid for them and not because I thought it was, again, a job or a thing I could do full time, but because it was fun and no one else was doing them. So I did a few of those. I really liked to write. I loved restaurants and going out. I loved to cook. I had started cooking, especially in my last year of college, um, 
more ambitiously. My mother was a great cook growing up, so I got a lot of her recipes, and I came back from college and moved into my parents' basement, as sometimes you do, because you have nowhere else to go and no income, and spent that year, well, you know, I spent a few months in the, in the basement and, and kitchen wallowing around, making my mother very nervous, and having no idea what to do. And finally, my mom's friend's daughter sat me down at my mother's request, because my mother was starting to panic that I had no direction, and asked me just to write down the things I love to do. Why, you know, you have so many interests, scale and and you're obviously bright, you did well in school, what do you want to do? Forget about what your friends are doing and, and what you think you should do because I didn't want to go to law school against my parents' better judgment and I didn't want to do an MBA or write my GMAT because I had no idea what I'd do with it. And, they, and I wrote down four things I love to do, eat, write, travel, and cook. And she looked at me and said, okay, that's great. I mean, there it is. Why don't you just try and do, at least try to do that? That could be a thing that could be a job but at the time and this is 20 years ago there especially in Canada there were not a lot of places to go do it most of the media that we consumed in Canada probably like 70% is from the states and the few full-time jobs in those areas unless you wanted to be a chef at a restaurant which I know I didn't want to be um, were few and far between and, and coveted and already taken <laughs> but I finagled my way into a job as an intern at Toronto Life Magazine, which is the city magazine, like New York Magazine or Los Angeles Magazine, and a really well-written, award-winning magazine. And I was the intern there for the summer. And I spent four months there, and then I went on to freelance for them for a while and did everything from fact-checking to research for their writers. Um, interestingly, one of the writers at the time, the associate editor, I should say, one of the associate editors was a guy named Adam Sternberg, who now is an amazing writer here in New York uh, for New York Magazine. Um, haven't seen him since, but we know now that we both live in the same sphere. Um, so he's done quite well, but I was his intern for the summer. And I also sort of fell in love with the food critic and the food editor at the magazine and found myself just magnetically drawn to them and following them around and eventually they let me they let me go on restaurant adventures with them and write little $25 and under reviews for them and that's when I realized that this was sort of what I wanted to do. I went from there to work for another newspaper in Canada as an editorial assistant and there the same thing happened so and I you, kept like, going back to the food place. What was it that um, you think that they saw because there was the I just was it that you had this spark and I think, energy was it like you were dogged like what do you think the the character that you brought to those early experiences what were was I thought it I think that I really wanted to work hard for them I wasn't afraid of doing whatever they needed I I definitely was happy to um you know transcribe their interviews and tally and write their expense reports I mean it didn't matter I just wanted to be around the people who were doing the food and I loved that energy of restaurants and the talk about food and the language of food and um, the world of chefs that I got to see this little window into and the food writers. I loved reading how descriptive their prose were and how they could take what I thought in my head about how something tasted and translate it for everyone. And I thought it was just fascinating. And I guess they saw, they saw that I was just a willing, hard worker that was able to sort of do what I need to do. But when I asked them, okay, so now here I am. I've decided I have a purpose. I want to be a food writer, quote unquote, 
because that was the job. There weren't a lot of, this was the beginning of the internet, for goodness sakes. <laughs> so there weren't half as many jobs in the food world as there are now. And they said to me, my food editor, I remember very clearly saying to me, that's great. You definitely have what it takes in terms of drive and dedication, but you don't know anything about food. Like, you like to eat. That's all. <laughs> and that's not what it takes. I mean, if you really want to be a food writer or if you realize that food is your, is your beat, so to speak. I was working at a newspaper at the time. So, right. you know, there was the sports desk and the right. news desk and the um, politics desk and the real estate desk. And then I was working for the weekend section, which had the food um, people working for it. And he said, just go learn about food. I mean, you need to learn. You need to be an expert because how can you write about something that you really don't know anything about? And he was totally right. Although, let's pause there because today, lots of people write, write about food. They have no idea. That is for sure. The and, world has changed dramatically. And they're rewarded for it, right? So you can be an influencer. You can be an Instagrammer. You could know nothing. Mm -hmm. You're you don't even have to like to eat much. No, which that or part, cook. That part kind of depresses me. Like, I don't mm -hmm. mind the not cooking. I'm not yeah. much of a cook myself. Yeah, yeah. But, um... Do you think it's still true that to like follow the path that you've taken, you need to study, or do you just need to eat, or do you just need to travel? I would like to think? think that if you want anyone to take you seriously, and if you really want to be an expert where you can have an opinion and a voice that is differentiated from the thousands of voices out there, then yes, you need you need to put in the work. Um, there's lots of people who don't and who are rewarded for it, sure. Um, and there's lots of different paths to do what you want to do. I guess it depends on what your goals are. If it's to just have hundreds of followers, hundreds of thousands of followers on Instagram, then maybe you don't really need to. You just need to do what, you know, make beautiful pictures that don't necessarily use those things. I wanted to write and I still, I love sort of the culture of, of, of cooking and restaurants. And so I realized that I had to know more and, and, I still believe that to be true. I'm not saying you have to take my path. By no means do I think it's required that you go to culinary school and required that you work in professional restaurants. Although I will say it it gives you a point of view that you can't get any other way. So you went and worked in professional kitchens. You worked for Jean Georges. Well, first I went to culinary school. Right. Sorry. You yeah. went to culinary right. So I learned, yeah, I learned to cook. Right. Although <laughs> culinary school, you know, is an overview. And then I went into kitchens. Yeah. So... Are there things you learned in working in kitchens that are irreplaceable, like things that you learned for life that... For sure. I, I worked in two very big kitchens, uh, high-profile kitchens. I worked at Le Cirque um, in the old space at the Palace Hotel when it was a four-star restaurant. And, you know, that dining room was like the power black book of New York. I remember so many people going through there, mayors and politicians and heads of banks and... Uh, all, you know, all sorts of celebrities and because it was an open kitchen and I actually worked the past, I, my station was the pasta and hot appetizer station when I was there, which faces out into the restaurant. So I really got to watch it all go down. And that restaurant is, a, I mean, the kitchen's a massive kitchen, that space, an extraordinary kitchen. And I was the only female and I was the lowest rung on the ladder. So I was doing a lot of the grunt work. But the lessons I learned are, I mean, speed, first of all, and precision and Really, I think kitchens teach you that there is no room for laziness, mm -hmm. uh, no room for cutting corners. You will hurt yourself or it will not be successful and up to the quality that a restaurant like that needs to maintain. And that helps me in all of my life. I mean, now I and I feel like that lesson proved uh, worthwhile down the road in so many ways, too. But 
In what way? You know, I, I remember going from there. I went to work at Vong and, and you know, the teamwork involved and just the lessons of, of the kitchen, of of the hierarchy of a kitchen, I think is so important. And, and the systems that really help you stay organized and teaching you lessons of being organized and taking the time to do things correctly the first time or else that your your chef will come and throw it all in the garbage, make you do it all again, <laughs> which is frustrating. But ultimately, again, another great lesson. I, I remember quite clearly my first job out of the kitchen was going to work for Jeffrey Steingarten at Vogue magazine. I was his assistant for two years and his research skills are incredible. And I came to him having come out of kitchens where I wasn't doing research in the same way. I wasn't going to the library and researching a dish or going online and researching a topic. But I understood the idea that you had to do things thoroughly and well the first time because you can't afford to miss pieces because you just didn't want to go that extra mile or because it wasn't convenient to you that day um, or because you were tired or you had, you know, you broke up with your boyfriend the night before. That stuff doesn't matter. It doesn't matter in a kitchen. It doesn't matter with any sort of final um, outcome for for writing really solidly researched and authoritative um, articles and, and stories. I imagine it's also true when you're on TV, like that is you're in that moment and only in that moment and you don't sure. really and you get, get called out on it, you know, because again, I think a lot of people when I first started doing television, which I never really anticipated doing, thanks Dana Cowan, <laughs> was, um, because of you, but I... Um, Call it to I, Chris Gertovich. Right, but sh- totally. But when I started doing television too, you realize the first question is, who is this person? And you have to prove yourself. And uh, I know that at the beginning of my time on television, I didn't know if I had the expertise to do the job. And... He, I mean, it's a dark hole, the internet, if you start looking at it too deeply and you have to kind of, on the one hand, walk away and have confidence in who you are and do the best you can do, but you also need to to prove yourself. And the same goes in a kitchen. It's about proving yourself to get to the next level. And and I think with any job rising in the ranks, you need to prove that you have what it takes to um, to deliver the goods. I was curious about the beginning of Top Chef, obviously now in season 15 we're all 89 you're um (laughs) you're quite confident but when you you know first walked onto that stage and you're saying yes no you go you know well you're not saying pack your knives and go but um did that require like reaching in and finding a confidence you weren't sure you had or was it just fun oh it required confidence and i remember fear i remember feeling afraid of making those decisions at the beginning because they feel and they are going to change the course of someone's life. Um, they do impact the people around you and you are making decisions that for me, it's a game for me. It was a job I was sent to do, but for the contestants on the show, this will, will, will impact their lives. This is their livelihood and they are putting themselves out there in a way that I am not saying I'm doing. I put myself out there in another way. I think being on television, but not because I'm fighting for, you know, a competition and I'm fighting to win something that has great stakes. Um, so how did you overcome what, that fear? I think that at the beginning, I mean, I remember the very first episode of the very first season, my heart beating so strongly in my chest. In fact, Katie Lee, we tell the story all the time, the first host of Top Chef had to deliver the lines, pack your knives and go. And we had to redo it a couple of times because her heart was beating so loudly it interfered with the audio. Oh my goodness. And ours too, all of us, were very scared about what we were doing. Um, 
we had never done this. This sort of format hadn't really been done before. And I think I overcame it because I got more comfortable, obviously, on the set. And I believed in the people, my producers, who were making the show. And Tom obviously lent a sense of authority and believed in the show and kept it really on the straight and narrow, kept it really about the food. And once we felt really comfortable with the fact that we were making a show about professional chefs and real cooking, um, and that that was new ground that we could really own, it became easier a little bit to feel like we weren't um, imposters. And then it was just about time and and really paying attention to the food I was eating and taking it seriously. Not too seriously that it was boring, as Tom says <laughs> in the foreword of my book. Not serious boring, but a serious discussion about food where we really respect the people who cook it and set out to make people's cooking better. And I think we accomplished that. And over the years, it's gotten easier, certainly. But I still take it seriously. I mean, I still realize that even though it's just a TV show and it's not the real world, it does have implications. And so... I'm so proud of our chefs for it. So the the show is amazing and is, I mean, more seasons ahead. But you have time to balance that. You had time to balance it with a cookbook. Yeah. And, um, and your daughter and your husband and this entirely full life that you lead. But when you look ahead, do you have a vision? Uh, or is that sort of blue nope. sky? Nope. Nope. And is that scary? <laughs> yep. Uh, sometimes. Yeah. In the short term, it's scary because... I like my child to go to college and I want to make sure I can afford these things. Um, but I think the same rules apply uh, to me now as they did then. I didn't plan on the path that I'm on. And I think none of us really could ever anticipate the twists and turns of the road. But I feel confident that if I keep going through the doors that become open, sometimes they open on the left and the right, not quite straight ahead, that I will keep working and keep finding interesting projects that excite me, which make me want to work hard, which I think will lead to good work. Um, That seems a little bit lofty and idealist, and sometimes it's not easy. I mean, I think right now the universe is in a strange place, um, and that certainly affects everyone, whether it's the restaurant world or the media world, and um, certainly the state of the union, quite literally. But I mean, I'm lucky that I think I have really great mentors and really good relationships with people who I respect and admire. And I hope that we all kind of will keep working together. The great thing with the food industry, I find, is that it's generally really generous. And there's so many great people that I've been able to call on in times of questioning and times of not really seeing the forest for the trees and who've helped me get through the darker patches. Nothing is certain. I mean, as we all know, things can change in a minute. And they certainly do every day. But I feel like I never look too far ahead or I will just get completely enveloped in the abyss. If I can look a few months, a year down the road and keep working towards those smaller goals, the bigger goals come into view more easily. And with that, I'm going to say thank you, Gail. It's such a great idea to end on because I think that people can get very intimidated about knowing, you know, or not knowing what's next and needing to know and having a whole plan. And I don't know, there are people who plan. Mm -hmm. I think that they're just in different professions. Some, and, but I even think there's just, I mean, the one thing I feel like I've, I've learned 
specifically too, you know, I worked with food and wine. I was an employee for a long time and then I changed and now I have a different sort of relationship where I still work with food and wine, but in different ways and on specific projects. And I remember at the moment that I decided to do that and it feeling like this massive leap without a safety net. Um, but I, I, I think that there's no, it, it, it made me look at every other industry and think there is no certainty in this world Taxes and death, is that yeah. what they say, are yeah. the only two things that are certain? Yeah. Um, and along the way, you just have to find things that you um, that you can take pleasure in and enjoy because work is also certain in some way. And I feel lucky that I've been able to at least keep working in, in things that I love to do. But I know that it could change any day. So you got to just appreciate it while you can. And take pleasure while you can. Yes. So I want people to pre-order your book. Yes, let's um, do it. Because Please do it. The book, the book is fantastic and so how can people find you where do they pre-order sure and yeah let's sell some books let's sell some books um absolutely i hope people enjoy it and cook with it and read it and um i'm easy to find gailsimmons.com you can pre-order the book anywhere that books are sold obviously amazon Barnes and noble um and then are you going find on tour? me i'm going on a big book tour i'm going Ooh. to many cities across the country so i'm going from dc to chicago la san francisco seattle boston obviously lots here in new york toronto montreal nashville so at later next year i'm going to be in charleston so if anyone wants to find me gailsimmons.com has my full tour schedule and there's lots of ways to come hang out I'm always happy to sign books, answer questions. I'm doing a lot of fun events from cooking and dinners to talks. And I hope people come along for the ride. It will be a really fun ride if Gail Simmons is there. Thank you for coming to the studio today. Thank you, David Tattashort, my amazing engineer. Thank you, all you listeners, for hanging out with us and hearing Gail's incredible story. You've got to cook some of her recipes. We've talked about some that are maybe a little bit complex, but I'm telling you there's simple vinaigrettes. And there's, I mean, the, the peanut butter oatmeal banana pudding thing yes, that's for breakfast. delicious. Oh, my gosh. It's my husband's and my daughter's favorite. It's pretty darn perfect. Thank you, Dana. So uh, come back, join me next week for another inspiring story from someone in the food world. And if you want to find me, you can find me at FW Scout on Instagram and Twitter. Till next week. Thank you, Dana. It's always a pleasure. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content and to hear about exclusive events, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be a part of the food world's most innovative community? Rate the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join our community by becoming a member. Just click on the beating heart at the top right of our homepage. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.